You're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM. This is Yuri Rashkin, and you're listening to Rashkin Report. My next guest is Vladislav Nezemtsev, who is director of uh, the Center for Post-Industrial Studies in Moscow. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, you are a very prolific author of uh, some very controversial pieces that I think um, are viewed with much interest both in Russia and the United States. And uh, I was hoping that we could uh, start by taking a look at your one of your most recent pieces in Newsweek, uh, saying that lifting sanctions won't help Putin. And uh, you end the story uh, by saying that for the Europeans to be misled by false promises and to subjugate their political principles to illusionary economic benefits would be a huge and uh, inexcusable mistake. What do you mean by that? Look, it's, uh, it's a rather simple idea, because uh, these days in Europe, uh, a lot of people, a lot of policymakers, are speculating about uh, the necessity to lift the sanctions against Moscow, uh, just because uh, they don't help, as they see it, they don't help to resolve the conflict in the eastern Ukraine, and at the same time, uh, they damage the economy of uh, European nations, like, for example, Italy, Hungary, Slovakia, and some other countries are exceptionally uh, you know, active in trying to lift sanctions against Russia. Uh, of course, when the sanctions... Uh, so my argument is very simple. Uh, when the sanctions were introduced, uh, they, of course, uh, disrupted uh, some kind, uh, some part of uh, bilateral trade between Russia and Europe, and they also disrupted some uh, financial flows because the European banks were not allowed to produce new loans to Russian banks and companies. Uh, but uh, since the sanctions were introduced, uh, more than one and a half year have already passed. So therefore, I would say that the Europeans should look on the different economic situation now existing in Russia because uh, these days... Uh, Ruble uh, is devalued around two times against the dollar and euro, uh, compared by, with 2014. Uh, the Russian market is, uh, has contracted a lot. Uh, it is uh, predominantly stuffed by domestic produce. Uh, also, if uh, the financial operations is, are considered, there are too few projects in Russia which can yield, uh, you know, huge... Uh, uh, huge interest rate. So, in any case, uh, it's uh, an illusion that if the sanctions are lifted, the European companies will return to the Russian market uh, and will uh, get back uh, their share of the market and will get all the benefits they enjoyed before the sanctions were introduced. So, my point is that even the sanctions are lifted, uh, the place which European companies can play in the Russian market will be very small, and therefore they will never regain the profits they hope to regain uh, thinking about lifting of the sanctions. So that's it. it's just not worth it economically uh, to lift the sanctions. And it will, of course, be depicted by the Kremlin as a big victory of Russia against Europe in, in, in the end. To what extent do you feel this is all due to oil prices? Because, as you said, the economy has changed. The picture, you know, the country that um, has uh, that these exporters have left a couple of years ago because of sanctions. It's not the same country that they will be necessarily would be coming back to, and in big part, it's because of the oil prices, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, I think there are two major factors in, in this case. First of all, are oil prices because they deprived Russia of maybe forty percent 
of uh, export revenues. And the second point is, of course, uh, the domestic economic policy of the government, because in recent year, years, uh, since Mr. Putin returned to the Kremlin in 2012, it becomes became more and more restrictive. Uh, and so, therefore, I think the major factor which contributes to Russian economic decline is actually uh, the Russian domestic economic policies, because uh, new taxes are introduced, uh, new uh, amounts of money are extracted from business by, in, uh, by, various, uh, by various schemes. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, the, um, all, all this siloviki, uh, as uh, we used to call them in Russia, are influencing business more and more. Uh, the state is interfering more and more often. So, in any case, I think that uh, the first and the major uh, issue in Russian economic, uh, in, Russian, in slowing Russian economy is, of course, uh, the Russian domestic policy. Uh, po- policy. And I can't see any, uh, you know... Uh, any signs that it will change soon. It will be more and more uh, subjugated to the state. Uh, so Mr. Putin and his aides, I think, look on the private businesses like speculators who are just, you know, here just to get more taxes from them uh, or uh, the best they can do not to harm the, uh, the state's interests. So uh, such an attitude to the business, which is, you know, prolific and pre- predominant to Mr. Putin, uh, so this is, uh, I think, the, the major problem in Russia. The oil prices came the second. All right. Now, when you're saying business climate has changed, um, one of the things that uh, has happened uh, since the sanctions is, uh, as, as you mentioned, a large push towards developing domestic producers. And while on the surface, so to say, it sounds like a great idea, let's, you know, let's help our local producers, the end result doesn't seem to be anything that the consumers are happy with. Yeah, you're right. Because, look, uh, there are two problems. Uh, in some industries, in some branches, there are some results. I would say, first of all, in agriculture, because uh, in agriculture you have a real surge of production, and uh, which came also, I would say, alongside with the surge in, in domestic prices. Because the local producers uh, now can uh, you know, push prices higher, uh, much ahead of inflation, just because they don't have any competitors. But nevertheless, uh, in agricultural sector, in uh, rural industries, you have a definite, uh, you know, upheaval. And in 2015, you have uh, around four to five percent growth in agriculture. But this is, I think, only one uh, branch which really benefited from, from 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 the changes, because in all other sectors, the dependence from uh, imported um, goods or imported technologies. Uh, it's too big uh, to to benefit uh, very much from this because uh, yes, uh, the government may order the national companies, uh, for example, to supply some uh, goods which the government needs, but they use the foreign components, and the foreign components now are becoming more and more expensive. So it's a double-edged sword, and it's it's, it's really uh, hard to say. Uh, whether it was a success. In any case, it was not a success in uh, uh, defense industry because defense industry was really very dependent from foreign components, and <laughs> which is what is really uh, uh, funny enough uh, on the components coming from Ukraine. So therefore, uh, I would say that the, what, what the Russians are used to call the import substitution it's uh, it's not very successful policy, and I, I will end with uh, uh, 
uh, I think quite you know well known uh, points that every uh, in you know every developing country which uh, underwent uh, successful modernization was actually they had an open economy and the success of modernization depended from uh, the fact how how successive you were in exports in, in exporting your finished product like China like South Korea like Vietnam. Uh, rather than uh, to close your market for competitors and then to try to you know to fill up the niches in in the um, local market with your with your domestic produce. Now, one reason I would think that even lifting of the sanctions won't make much of a difference is that you know we continue to see news reports that indicate that there is no really respect for private property or ownership in Russia. So why would Western investors of any sort want to invest? In Russia, they may want to maybe send their goods there, but this, you know, lifting of the sanctions is not going to make anybody want to invest more in Russia, or would it? Do you think? Look, it's it's a more complicated question, a little bit more complicated uh, as you present, because uh, yes, uh, you know that you cannot be uh, sure in Russia investing in Russia about you know the property, the property rights are not respected. Everything this is right, but. I would say that the Russian government and the Russian political leaders, they distinguish quite clearly between foreign property uh, and domestic property. So even if you are a Russian, if you are own your company, so an offshore, com- offshore firm or, 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 or offshore corporation, you are definitely not safe because they know you are a Russian. For example, just several weeks ago, uh, a, you know, an owner or a major stakeholder of the Modelo Airport, Mr. Kamenchik, was jailed. Uh, was put in the house arrest uh, in, in Moscow. Um, you know, they, they put a criminal case against him for security reasons. But nevertheless, it, he is Russian. He owns a Russian uh, entity, a Russian airport, uh, even through uh, BVI-registered companies, I believe. But he is Russian, and this is a crucial. I never saw any kind of a huge assault on Western property, uh, you know, jailing some management of uh, automobile plant uh, built by Volkswagen or something like this, uh, sizing uh, some property of IKEA or Oshan or other retail chains. No, there were not such cases. So I would say that uh, for for the for, for all time, Mr. Putin is in power. Uh, the Russian leadership really distinguishes between. Uh, foreign property and the Russian property. And if there is no law, uh, you know, uh, to which uh, the Russians may apply, there is some law, I would say, uh, to which the Westerners may. For example, you can remember that maybe 10 years ago when the Gazprom entered into the Sakhalin uh, uh, gas uh, facilities built by Exxon and uh, Mitsui, even at that time, they paid uh, quite, quite, quite a good price for these assets. When they uh, wanted to uh, nationalize TNKBP, privately owned by TN, uh, Alpha Group and uh, British Petroleum, they paid a very high price uh, for this stake. So I would say that uh, to being a really Western, not an offshore, but a really Western investor in Russia, it's much more safer than, uh, than to be a Russian. But nevertheless, of course, these days, uh, it's much more, uh, there are many possibilities uh, for investing uh, outside Russia for the Western companies. So I actually do not, do not believe they will, you know, stay in line uh, uh, to, to, 
to, to invest in Russia. All right. A um, couple of more questions about this, um, well, this story. Uh, Dr. Inazemtsev, at what point would you argue to lift sanctions? What, what would need to happen, in your opinion, for sanctions to be, there would be a valid point that now sanctions, is it just a matter of whether Putin is in power or are there some other conditions that you would uh, kind of put on? Look, uh, it's an interesting question. I never thought about it because um, from my point of view, uh, the imposition of sanctions was actually uh, only one response uh, which Europe uh, had in hand uh, considering the, uh, the Ukrainian crisis. They, of course, NATO and the United States and the European powers, they were not able to respond militarily. And they were, of course, not able just to be uh, to, to remain silent. So, therefore, they introduced the sanctions as you know the, the least possible uh, response to what Putin did in Crimea uh, and in eastern uh, eastern Ukraine. Actually, I don't know uh, the uh, the answer of your question. So, um, I, I'm sure that Putin will never uh, fulfill the Minsk, Minsk agreements. Because uh, what he wants uh, is to have uh, some kind of leverage on Ukraine, so he will try to, uh, you know, to turn this uh, Donbas, uh, Lugansk, and Donetsk republics into something like a Transnistrian region or South Ossetia, like a client states. Uh, but actually, actually, I don't know. Uh, But, uh, he should, so he will not fulfill the Minsk agreement, so therefore sanctions can stay forever. Uh, of course, the Europeans and the Russians, uh, both of them, may decide uh, to do something uh, and to uh, push Ukrainians to do something which may be interpreted as the fulfillment of the Minsk agreement and therefore the sanctions may be lifted. But I think that uh, the economic necessity, the economic consideration will be on the first place in lifting the sanctions. So they may be lifted tomorrow uh, if, if the both sides, on, if, if the Europeans uh, consider them, you know, uh, quite unproductive for their side. Uh, I, I'm not sure that there is a lot of political principles in European leaders uh, which will force them to maintain the sanctions for a long time. So perhaps by calling for them to remember their political principles, you're, you're hoping that they will, but you're not really counting on them to. No, uh, the problem is actually twofold, because uh, it's not only about political principles. It's about uh, the behavior of the party, which is... Uh, Now, under uh, I, I would say, you know, under protection, uh, this is Ukraine, because uh, if uh, the Europeans look on Ukraine as you know as a success story, uh, as a democratic power, very Europeanized, uh, fighting corruption, going step by step to the uh, to embracing Western values and so on and so on, uh, and the Russians, for example, advancing to Mariupol or some other European cities. This is a case the sanctions may stay forever. But if you say if you see that Ukraine is now deeply engaged in you know in, in uh, uh, you know finding some new balances between different groups and elitist you know uh, factions in Ukrainian parliaments, that the corruption is in place, that actually nothing is done for reforming the economy, and so on and so forth. So in in any case, the Europeans will. Uh, think once and again, like for example in, in, in the Netherlands in early April during the referendum about the association agreement with Ukraine, they will think once and again about what we should suffer because of these Ukrainians who are doing nothing to improve uh, their own positions. So I think this is also a big argument because uh, this was, uh, the sanctions were um, imposed just at the, at the time when 
there was a lot of hopes about Ukraine. And if the hopes are not materialized, so what should we defend them if they don't want to defend themselves? And what we should impose a change on Ukraine and defend them from the Russians if they don't want to change, they won't be you know, like uh, more corrupt as the Russia is corrupt. So just should they go alongside with Russia and be happy. All right. You're listening to WSU W91.7 FM. Uh, this is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. My guest uh, today is uh, director of the Center for Post-Industrial Studies in Moscow, Vladislav um, uh, Nazemtsev. Uh, Dr. Nazemtsev, you wrote a very – the other story that I wanted to talk to you about is your Washington Post um, uh, op-ed piece where you speak about Putin's self-destructing economy. And, uh, and there you're kind of uh, advising once again Westerners to tread carefully. Um, what, what is self-destructive economy? No, no, uh, the, way, the, uh, the idea behind this story was also uh, a little bit more complex than uh, it may seem. Because uh, here in Washington, a lot of people, uh, quite respected people, uh, are talking now about the Russian economy uh, balancing on the brink of collapse. Uh, and uh, insisting that uh, both oil prices and sanctions and or other factors uh, that can bring Russian economy to a catastrophic situation in, in, in a couple of years, not to say months. So my point was that uh, I don't uh, think these um, uh, experts are right. I think Russian economy is in a bad condition, but not very, but not very bad, I would say. So it is declining, but not entering a, a catastrophic uh, stage. So the, the article was about that uh, I believe, and I, can, I, I think we have a lot of uh, facts which contribute to such a uh, conclusion, that uh, during the first years of Mr. Putin power, he was actually pursuing a quite liberal economic strategy, not to say about politics, economic strategy, uh, and this strategy combined with rising oil prices produced Russian boom from uh, uh, the year 1999 and 2000 till 2007, 2008. So this was a long boom, eight, seven, eight years. And then uh, when uh, this uh, strategy was exhausted, because the, uh, to this time, uh, in 2008, the state expenditures, the expenditures that the state uses for its own subsistence, like you know, army, military forces, uh, interior ministry, uh, ministry uh, all, all this, you know, government uh, bodies and so on, the corruption and, 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 and any other, other things like this, they were from three to, to four times higher than they were at the start of the Putin's reign. And at that time, the economy, they, this, uh, um, this weight on the economy was really unbearable. It was too much uh, the, the government consumed uh, to allow the economy to go to go forward, and at the time when um, so this was the first factor. Of course, there was a fluctuation on the oil prices in 2008, 9, 10, and so on. But nevertheless, between 2008 and 2014, the Russian economy showed no growth at all. There were slowdown, there were depression, then a little bit uh, revival. But in general, it was a growth which may be considered a zero for for another seven years. So my, my point is that uh, during this time, only the high oil prices were uh, allowed the Russian economy to stay afloat. 
And then when the, uh, when the oil prices came down, there's no other factors which uh, make, uh, which, which are, uh, you know, supporting the Russian economy these days. So this, uh, from 2014, I experienced a long decline. Not a you know, catastrophic crisis with 20% uh, of GDP uh, being cut off. It's just a long decline, a depression. Uh, every year the GDP will fall by 3 to 25 one and a half, once again 3% or so. Uh, and it will continue for years because the Russian population and the Russian people they actually are accustomed to such kind of economic troubles. And uh, even after several years of decline, uh, the average uh, quality of living will be much, much higher than it was at the start of Putin's, Putin's governance. So, therefore, we have several years um, for Mr. Putin to continue this kind of economic policy without being uh, endangered uh, by some kind of popular unrest uh, popular uh, disappointment. So therefore, uh, and he, I, I believe he will not do nothing to improve the economy because this is the points which are very crucial to him. Uh, the leadership of the, you know, the special position of state or property, uh, the dominance of uh, security agencies against the whole society and so on. So therefore, I believe that he will allow the economy to decline a little bit every year uh, and I don't know what will be the outcome, actually. Uh, all, the, the only one point, uh, what was put in the article, is that we are now in the beginning of the long downward trend in the Russian economy. That's it. How long it may be, I think it may be five years, maybe ten years. What will be the end? What will be the outcome? I actually don't know. So you do not consider the political environment that results, you know, the, 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 well, as it's being described now, the battle between the television and the refrigerator, you, you consider this as something that TV can successfully continue to win, uh, with propaganda for the next five to 10 years. Russians no. have low expectations of, uh, lifestyle. So it's going to be okay. And there will be no uprising. Look, uh, I actually, uh, yeah, I understand what you're speaking about, but I would say that there's no so much competition between uh, refrigerator and uh, television, um, the TV set. I would say that, um, look, you can remember, for example, the situation in the first half of the 90s. There were no propaganda. Russia was actually heading west. But at the same time, it was a huge economic downturn, and the, the population suffered much, much more than it may even suffer in the coming years. So, and there was no unrest due to economic reasons. It was, you know, the unrest uh, in 1993 when Mr. Yeltsin dissolved the Supreme Soviet of the former uh, Soviet Social, Russian Soviet Socialist Republic. But economic hardships hadn't produced any kind of up upheaval. So, I think that uh, it's not about propaganda. It's just about the Russians understand that uh, they cannot solve their economic problems or they believe they cannot solve their economic problems collectively. They will, they will look for individual uh, resolution of systemic contradictions. They will uh, find out some uh, personal means of survival. Uh, they will take another job. They will economize on taxes. Uh, they will, you know, uh, go to their duchess and grow more food for themselves. 
during the summer months and something like this. But they will not reward just because they do not see an alternative. Because look, the logic is very simple. The oil prices went down three times uh, from, from their highs. So is Putin responsible? No, he's not. So, okay, we can overthrow Putin. What next? Will we live better? No, we, we, we will not. So this is the kind of logic which is paralyzing the society. All right. A couple of questions that kind of from American point of view, uh, looking at our you know presidential election process right now, uh, it appears that uh, Mr. Trump, who is leading in the Republican primaries, is either a fan of Putin or at least has been quiet about being critical of Putin uh, while he may be kicking Mexico or he kicking China. Um, and there's a certain amount of uh, population in the in the United States that are actually kind of claim to be fans of Vladimir Putin. Um, what do you say to those people? Actually, look, uh, it's an interesting question. I uh, also had an article um, several years ago, maybe five, five, four or five years ago, in the American interest, which was called the cultural contradictions of democracy. Uh, and uh, my point was that the democracy, uh, and even uh, not even democracy, but the idea was actually that um, the universal voting right uh, uh, in every country uh, uses a danger of, uh, say, of populism. And uh, it's interesting for me to look now at the presidential campaign here in the United States, but I think that I was definitely right at the time. Uh, actually, I'm quite skeptical, not about the democracy itself, but about this universal voting rights. Because, for example, even in the United States, uh, in the 19th century, or in Britain for, for centuries, it was a democracy which was, uh, which allowed, in, in, uh, under which uh, only the part of the population was allowed to vote. And this was a much more secure democratic system than we have now, uh, either in America or in Venezuela or in Russia or in other uh, countries, higher democratic they may, may be. So therefore, I think that no one, no country is uh, secured from a rising of such kind of a demagogue and populist Mr. Trump is uh, looking like. But at the same time, I think that... Uh, it will be an interesting experience for America if Trump is elected, because uh, because I think that uh, judiciary powers and uh, you know the Congress will somehow limit uh, his ability to do things which are inappropriate and which Mr. Putin can do freely in Russia. So therefore, I would say that uh, maybe Mr. Trump uh, is a good you know kind of vaccine for America to have him as a president uh, and to understand how. Uh, how strange it is and how maybe bad it is uh, to have a president like this. Uh, but nevertheless, I think America is much more safe than any other democratic society because you have a lot of cultural rights. So that's my point. If you want Trump, elect him. I, I don't think he will ruin the country. All right. Well, that's encouraging. Um, <laughs> well, and what do you tell people that are in America that are fans of Mr. Putin? Um, how do you, you know, do you <laughs> tell them that's, that's fine or do you say, no, wait a minute? No, I would think ju just only one moment. Just reflect better on whom you are supporting. Because look, I, I, I would not say about Americans, but for example, if you came to Estonia or Latvia or other republics, they have a small 
portion of Russian-speaking population who are fans of Putin. And when you are sitting in the taxi with some kind of with this kind of Russian driver who is who says that Putin is a great leader and blah 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 blah, you ask him why? Why you think Putin is a great leader? And he says because uh, if uh, because here in Tallinn I'm living in a very small uh, old apartment uh, with my children because everything is very expensive. And in Russia, Mr. Putin gave already uh, to all Russians who were need a new uh, modern uh, housing. He said, look. Who told you this? Uh, no, I am l- looking to Russian television. Mr. Putin, or for example, the Minister of Defense, is uh, granting the keys from new apartment apartments to, to servicemen, to uh, to to workers, and so on. And this is every day. So it's it's simply not true that, that Russia is a nice country to live in. Uh, and uh, if you realize this, if you uh, look more precisely on everyday Russian life. I think you, you, don't, you will not uh, support Mr. Putin. Of course, Mr. Putin may be a good ally to someone uh, who wants you know, to, to refurbish uh, the global order or to rebuild the global order. Maybe, yeah? Maybe if the United States will, uh, would side with uh, Mr. Putin in, in Syria, maybe we'll have uh, much, more, uh, much better results in fighting uh, terrorism or Islamic State uh, if uh, you are fighting them alone, but nevertheless, it's it's a very small story. It's a very uh, you know small issue. And overall uh, experience of Mr. Putin's Russia is actually not 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 not, not very fine for me. That's it. So, so really, so if people feel good about Putin, chances are this is just misinformation. It is not completely misinformation. If they like Mr. Putin for his domestic policies. Uh, they simply do not understand what it is uh, what it is about. If he likes them for you know being very you know uh, strong on international forceful international leader, right? uh, forceful international. In this case, it may be true that he is much more you know straightforward than than Americans are, or of course the Europeans are. But what are the results? Of course, if, if, if you want to go and, you know, to destroy, for example, Oman and to occupy it, yeah, Putin is a very good example when he, when he came to South Ossetia and pushed out the Georgians. Yeah, this is an example. But do you need such things? That's it. You're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM. Uh, this is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. My guest is uh, Dr. Inez Yemtsev, director of the... Moscow-based Center for Post-Industrial Studies. Um, the question that I think keeps coming up in my head as, as we're having this conversation about different aspects of whether it's Mr. Putin or sanctions against Russia and, and what could happen or not, um, what are Russians good at? You know, it seems like so often, all you know, there's, a, I think, a Russian joke that whatever they decide to do, the end result is Kalashnikov. Uh, you know, how, what, what are, you know, because, uh, you know, sometimes Russian will ask, what do Americans know about Russia? Well, not very much. What should Americans know Russia for? You know, what, what, uh, it may, is it just a matter, I guess, of, uh, the oppressive uh, business climate that new ideas don't emerge? Or, or what's, what's the, what's the story in your opinion? No, look, I think this story is very simple because you shouldn't uh, um, take Russia for Russians and vice versa. Russians are good in quite everything. because This is a very talented nation. Uh, and uh, if you can see, even here in the United States, there are a lot of Russians 
uh, who are very active and very successful in different branches of business and services and, uh, you know, in, in teaching, quite in everywhere, quite everywhere. And uh, now in Europe, uh, if you came to Paris or to Vienna or Berlin, you have a lot, a lot of Russians, young, professional, experienced, and uh, able to do everything the Europeans are able to do. So I would say that the Russians are good to, in, in many things, in, in very many things, and they are honest and respectful people. So the nation is quite different from the state, and uh, from the state and from the elite, uh, as it was actually in the Soviet times as well. So uh, my point is that uh, no one should be afraid of the Russians, uh, and uh, everybody should be ca- quite uh, ca- careful and ab- about Russia as a state, the state actor. So this is a big, a big problem. I think Russians are much better than than Russia. All right. So just the key is to get Russians out of Russia, and then and then they're doing well. Yeah. Look, I, I even wrote, but it was in Germany. I wrote an article two years ago uh, in the German magazine, which is called Internationale Politik, about the Russian diasporas, and I would say that. Uh, uh, the article was, in, if translated into English, was, was the title was uh, The Professional Russians versus the Russian Professionals. So this is a big problem. This is a major difference between. So if you, uh, if you are speaking about the Russian world, you have even actually two Russian worlds outside Russia because one Russian world is a world of professional Russians yeah, who are petitioning Mr. Putin, getting money from Mr. Nikonov Foundation, of Mir and something like this, who are staying in Donbass, in Crimea, in Tallinn, and in many other places, praising Russia, uh, raising from its knees, praising Mr. Putin, and so on. And other group, much more numerous, is the Ru- Russian professionals who are really very good integrating in integrating in different uh, kinds of societies, much better integrated uh, than, for example, the Arabs and uh, people from South Asian states, which actually use their professional capacities and their professional talents uh, to, you know, to produce great results uh, everywhere they, uh, they can do this. So I would say that um, don't take uh, Russians as Putinists. That's it. All right. Um, in the most recent news, we watched uh, that Russia is now announced that they're pulling out of Syria, which uh, I think was maybe surprise for some, maybe expected for others. Were you surprised? Yeah, definitely. And um, what what do you th- feel led to it? And even though perhaps you know you were surprised, but what are the what could be the outcome? And uh, is there is there more that uh, we're going to see? Look, I think that Mr. Putin's uh, political moves are very emotional. Uh, and uh, both the Syria intervention and the Syria withdrawal uh, are also emotional. Uh, and uh, I have seen several explanations, or probable explanations, of what has happened. And I, my point is that the only one realistic explanation I saw was that it is due to growing uh, Russian-Iranian controversies. Because uh, Russia was expecting from Iran to be a solid ally, ally uh, in the region. And so Iran was also and is uh, very active in Syria. And when the Russians engaged, so they became even more, even closer connected to Iran. And now what the Russians wanted from Iran, they wanted more contracts uh, for supplying military equipment from Russia. 
they wanted more Russian companies to come into Iran uh, for supplying their the, the produce and to make investments. And of course, they wanted uh, the Iranians to join the Russian efforts to stop the fall in the oil prices and to cut production and exports. And the Iranians disagreed. So therefore, and so they cut, they uh, tried to rewrite some... Uh, but but how could uh, uh, Russians or Putin expect Iran to cut its oil production when they just re-emerged from sanctions? That yeah. seems unrealistic. It's, it's, it's a very good question, but I think that, uh, once again, uh, I, I just will quote Mrs. Merkel who said that Putin is living in another world, and he is actually living in another world. He thinks he is so powerful and mighty that he can, uh, you know... Uh, seduce anybody to do everything. So uh, my point is that uh, uh, they can get from Iran uh, anything they wanted. And in this case, it was a kind of emotional move saying that the Iranians, you can do their job in Syria as you wish, and we are leaving. Uh, this is, for me, it's only one explanation which really is based on some kind of Putin's behavior I can see many times. I, I, I saw many times many times in, in, in the past years. So what will happen next? Um, I think that, of course, the Islamic State will, will go ahead and uh, Bashar al-Assad's forces will, uh, will, will suffer more and more defeat. Uh, so therefore, maybe the Russians will come back at some, some time, at, at, at some point. Maybe not. So I'm, I'm not sure that... Uh, what will happen. But nevertheless, I would say that when Mr. Putin announced uh, the withdrawal, nor Mr. Putin, neither Mr. Putin nor Mr. Uh, Lavrov or Mr. Shoigu were, uh, seemed to be happy. So I think it's uh, more unexpected uh, decisions than it, it was anticipated. Uh, and uh, I think it was made, uh, you know, in uh, without very long uh, debates or reflections on uh, on the further steps. Was it the same way as the decision to go in Syria was made? No, no. I think the decision to go there was made with much more considerations. Okay. Um, well, I, I just wanted to uh, jump back because I was thinking about what you said about Russians, and, and I agree with you completely as far as kind of the, the prior question about Russians being good at things and being careful about dealing with the Russian state. And it, I guess maybe it even ties in with the Syria question, because um, what is um, Russian state good at? Because they, they've, to the world, they can offer natural resources, they can offer military um, prowess to some extent, although the planes seem to be falling down every now and then. Um, and they seem to have some technical expertise uh, that uh, Iran was perhaps interested in and with uh, the nuclear facilities and so forth. Um, but now that uh, they're losing more and more friends and clients and customers and everybody, what what is Russian future of the state uh, power can look like? Look, uh, it's a very big question, and uh, actually Russian state, um, historically, is one of the most successful states in history, because uh, they used to build uh, a huge continental empire no one else uh, could manage, and empire is still in place. Uh, so therefore, I would say the Russian uh, state is successful in managing the huge territorial landmass. 
and he eat, eat forever okay. once. Uh, it, uh, so this is the first point. And this is be, uh, because of this, the Russians are so sensitive uh, to, uh, you know, uh, to decreasing their territory. For example, this is a problem with the Soviet Union. Uh, when the Soviet Union uh, felt uh, it was a huge trouble for the Russians because they lost a part of the territory. And therefore, even you gained 0.14% of your territory by annexing Crimea, it's a huge national you know, renewal because you, you got more territory. The, the Russians are stick to the territory question. So, therefore, I think the Russian state is good in, in managing this. Uh, in uh, everything else, uh, I think it is not very good. It is uh, very bad, uh, very poor in uh, mobilizing the, uh, the potential, you know, creative potential of the people. Uh, there is not it is very good in uh, solving some tasks or some problems uh, on whatever price. And this is good. You can build social Olympics on time. Uh, everything is functioning uh, at the price of $50 billion. Yeah, you can do this. But uh, it is the most, the biggest problem for the Russian state is that it never considers the very idea of effectiveness. Uh, and so, therefore, uh, eventually, from time to time, it comes into a dead end. It was every time in history, maybe in 80, every 80 or 100 years, the Russian, uh, the Russian state come, came into a dead end because it proves to be very ineffective. And uh, I think this is, uh, so, to govern land masses is the biggest uh, advantage and to no, not to consider uh, effectiveness is the best disadvantage, the, the most disadvantage point. All right. Um, in that case, uh, perhaps uh, the last question, and to connect the, the land mass management with the Syria situation, um, it seems that one of the underwriting or overriding philosophies of Putin's uh, regime has been uh, not a step back, not, never show any weakness. Um, and uh, one of the ideas that could happen after Putin is gone, if that, that the land mass could, the country could fall into several countries, fall apart into several countries, and that perhaps he's holding it together in his powerful grip. Uh, do you feel that uh, Syria and leaving Syria could be something that would be viewed as a big, big sign of weakness? And uh, do you think that um, following Putin's departure, um, the collapse of the country could lead to several countries emerging? Mm, no, actually, I, I don't see uh, the Syrian uh, withdrawal as a big proof of weakness. Uh, and uh, but actually, it doesn't matter because, um, from my point of view, as uh, I communicate with my Moscow friends and uh, what I'm reading from Moscow press, uh, no one considers this as a big deal and a big blow to Mr. Putin's popularity. So even it, it is a failure, even it was a failure because uh, the final goals were not achieved. So, in any case, it is uh, not something which can damage Putin's, uh, Putin's position in the eyes of the people. Uh, as the Russian, uh, um, the future of the Russian Federation is concerned, I would say that I do not believe in the possibility of, uh, of, uh, you know, of Russia becoming, uh, falling into several states. Because, uh, actually, I'm, I'm quite a realist. Uh, Russians now consist... Uh, so, look, only one option here is that some 
small republics of northern Caucasus may uh, uh, may try to uh, to secede from Russia, but mm-hmm. nothing else. Really? And okay. if they secede, I, I think no one in Russia will ever cry. But uh, in any case, what, what uh, is going about uh, other regions? I, I think. Look, first of all, um, Russia is a mono-ethnic uh, country. Uh, it's around 82-83% of Russians. Uh, if you take uh, Ukrainians, Belarusians, and uh, children from uh, you know, intermarriages between Russians and, for example, Tatars, there are even more. So, uh, in this case, uh, Far East, Siberia, they will never go out of Russia because what for? You are one nation, one language, one history. Uh, there is no any signs of, you know, Co-independence movement in Siberia. But what about just the issue of sharing resources? Because one, you know, because right now everything is divided from Moscow out. I know, I know, and I, I wrote a special book with uh, former governor of Krasnoyarsk on Siberia, uh, and uh, of course it's a crucial question. But I would say that uh, it doesn't long, uh, it doesn't exist any long uh, anymore because. Uh, if you have uh, over twenty-five dollars, it's a problem uh, of maybe it is uh, a disadvantage to have an uh, oil-dependent economy or depend uh, primarily from oil, having no enterprises or no no industry at your, at your in your particular region. So, therefore, I would not say it, this topic was touched and was debated several times. Uh, uh, during meditative years. But I think now it's uh, not, not the most crucial question, definitely. So this is the first point. Uh, the national republics, which may be, you know, the source of some kind of pro-independence movement, they are encircled by the Russian territory, like Tatarstan or Bashkortostan uh, or other republics in, in the Volga region. So how can they be independent? It's, it's nonsense. So therefore, uh, even so if... So they're, they're example, landlocked, they're stuck. Yeah, definitely. For example, and if uh, you consider the Far East uh, to split from Russia, it's also a very interesting story because the people in Khabarovsk, uh, they are more pro-Russian and pro-European than the people in Rezan because they uh, believe their identity is the European one because uh, in Rezan you can tell people that Russia is a Eurasian country with a huge Asian you know, exposure. But in Khabarovsk you see Asia across the river in China. And you are definitely European. And so you, 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 you are completely sure that if you split from Moscow, you will be a province of China in 10 years. So this perspective uh, isn't considered very good by anyone. So therefore, I think that uh, there are a lot of uh, issues which will prevent Russia from splitting. Uh, Dr. Inazemtsev, it's uh, it's been a pleasure, uh, Director of the Center for Post-Industrial Studies uh, in Moscow. Uh, we've been speaking by Skype. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to Rashkin Report.